It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, super excited. Uh, We're diving into names. We're not just going to talk about names. We're going to dive into some names. And what I want to do in this particular session is actually give you three names. (laughs) And awesome. Uh, So we go from like no names to three names. Uh, And then moving forward, we're going to look at one name um, every every time. The reason for all that is I actually want to lay a foundation for God's primary names. And I figured in, instead of taking, you know, a session on each of the names, that we would just kind of take the primary ones, talk about them as a whole, and then in the next session start building on those. In other words, the three primary names becomes like a foundation for all the other names of God. Uh, most of the names of God are compound names based on these names. Does that make sense? So you have stuff like Jehovah Jireh. And if you don't understand the name Jehovah or Yahweh, you're going to miss the emphasis of Jehovah Jireh. And so as we start getting these other names, I just want to lay a foundation. And again, we, we could probably spend multiple sessions on each of these names. And I may at some point return to some of these. But, but I just wanted to look as a, from like a global perspective at these three primary names of God. So you ready to jump in? Oh, I'm excited. So the first name I want to look at, again, we're going to look at three of these this morning. Uh, The first name is the name Elohim. Uh, It's interesting when you you look at the name Elohim. uh, Elohim is, again, one of the primary names. It shows up all over the place. Uh, It is often translated as God, lowercase God, ruler, or judge. And it's interesting that when we talk about the fact that God is Elohim, uh, that he is God, uh, the awkward thing about this particular name is that this name is not just used for God. uh, It is used for a myriad of supernatural beings. Uh, This is the name that is often used in the Old Testament for, hey, the pagan culture out there, those Canaanites, they have a whole bunch of Elohim. Uh, They have a whole bunch of gods out there. And this word will be used. Uh, sometimes this word is used in the sense of like the angelic host. Uh, sometimes this word is, which all this stuff gets really awkward when you think about it. It's like, I just want a name just for God. <laughs> and yet the very first one that we are given, which is found in Genesis 1.1, is this name Elohim. Again, here, here's the passage, and you know this well, but Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. I find it really important then that when God introduces himself and says, hey, here I am. This is the very first verse in scripture. God does not give us his personal name. He doesn't give us other attributal names. He gives us this name. In fact, what is really interesting is between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, this name, Elohim, shows up 35 times. This is God's creative name. In other words, this is his creative name. Uh, powerful name in, in, the, in the creation account. So when, it, when God speaks light in, into darkness, when God creates the land in the midst of the seas, when God creates the animals, all of that is done, I am Elohim. And that's how he's introducing himself. So 35 times from Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, 
The only name that we are given of God is Elohim. Again, it's this idea of power and might, but a literal definition, maybe if you want to think of it this way, means a strong one. It emphasizes the power. It emphasizes the fact that here is God and he has authority, uh, he has control, he has power. It's that kind of an idea. Uh, this, this name, by the way, shows up nearly 2,600 times in the Old Testament. So this thing's all over the place in terms of the name of, of, of our God. And I, I really appreciated what Tony Evans said about this name specifically, so I just want to give you a quote from one of his books. <clears throat> Speaking of Elohim, he says, the name has to do with God's sovereignty and his authority, reflecting the greatness of his power. So before God shows us his gentleness, his fatherhood, or his grace, God introduces himself to us as Elohim, the great and powerful. He wants to establish right from the start that he is the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present one. Now, again, we, we could spend hours just talking about each of these names, but in this, I just want to give some summary stuff. Uh, in each of these names, I want to give two quick ideas. So in terms of Elohim and how it relates to just us and how we understand our amazing, majestic God, number one, the name Elohim reminds us that he is powerful, that, that he is the creator of all things. That, that yeah, there are, there are some, you know, other gods of the culture, and you can do whatever you want to do with that. Whether you want to just say they are false and they don't even exist and they are make-believe, or as Scripture seems to suggest, which is super awkward, that there are these things called lowercase gods, uh, that there are these spiritual influences, that there are these demonic powers. There, there are these, as Paul would say, principalities and powers and minds and dominions that people worship and give loyalty to. And, and so however you want to understand this, and it, it's weird either direction you go. <laughs> Everyone okay? Some of you are like looking a little nervous. But, 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 but folks, our culture has a whole bunch of gods. We have a god of entertainment. We are obsessed with sports. We're consumed with sex. We're, we're wrapped up in, I mean, you start going through the list, and, and whether they're quote-unquote an actual god, you know, like in the Old Testament, you had Baal, Baal or, you know, Astareth, or, you know, Molech, and all these kind of things where people actually would sacrifice and give themselves to you. Okay, whether those were actual beings or not, that actually doesn't matter, but they were called the Elohim. And God says, I'm not that. That that's not me. That I am Elohim. I am the all-powerful one. And I'll get into this in a second. There is a quite big distinction. Does that make any sense? So when you say the name Elohim, we're, we're talking about the creator God who spoke everything out of nothing. In other words, he, he brought everything into existence out of nothing. That, that he is all-powerful, all, I mean, he's just, he's ever-present. He was there before time. That, that's the emphasis, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Uh, one other thought with this Elohim thing is this idea of plural but singular. And this is super awkward when you, when you really get into it. Uh, the name Elohim in Hebrew is plural. Uh, in English, when we, when we want to make something plural, we typically add an S to it, right? Um, uh, I have a cat. And if I add another one, there are cats, right? 
There's a cow or a bull or a horse. Pick your rodeo animal. And then if you add an S, right, it, it multiplies this thing. In Hebrew, <clears throat> you don't add an S. You add the im at the end. So the word El, E-L, is God. It's a singular God, typically used for the foreign gods. Uh, some of God's compound names, names have that. El Shaddai, right? And so the name El is this idea of God. But the moment you put the im at the end, it makes it plural. For example, you have a cherub, right? This angelic creature, a cherub, or a seraph. And the moment you put more of them together, you don't have cherubs. You have the cherubim. You don't have seraphs. You have the seraphim. So in Isaiah 6, oh, there are the seraphim, right? And, and they have the six wings, and they're all crying out, holy, holy, holy. Right? It's, it's the plurality idea. So think about how awkward this is. God says, "Woo, hi, you know who I am? I am Elohim. And the word is plural. And that's awkward for a Jew. Because they have one God. And in fact, the most quoted scripture for an Israelite, even to this day, is the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5. And, and last summer we, we unpacked it, we walked through it in the other series. But, but listen to what this says, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, hear, O Israel. And by the way, this is, this is the passage they would quote every morning and every evening. You come into the synagogue, this is what you quote. I mean, you say this daily. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our Elohim. And Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your Elohim with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting? Again, there's a separation between the culture and all the Elohim out there and the, and the false gods and the pagan stuff. And God says, I am Yahweh your God. And I love the distinction here. But, but listen to this. God is very clear. He says, Moses, hear, listen. Your God, Yahweh, your, your Elohim, he is singular. And that, is, that has to be confusing. Uh, it's interesting, <clears throat> uh, several hundred years before Jesus uh, Alexander the Great in the 300s BC literally took over the, the known world and he, he Hellenized is what we call it, but he, he basically turned the whole world into a Greek philosophy and, and language and that kind of system, which is why Greek was a prominent language uh, during the time of, uh, of the apostles in the New Testament. One of the things that began to happen a few hundred years before Jesus is that most people weren't speaking Hebrew and so what, what these Hebrew scholars did is they took the Old Testament Hebrew and wrote it into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint. So we have a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Does that make sense? And what I find really intriguing is that whenever they would translate the word Elohim, they never translated it plural, speaking of our God. They always did it singular. They, they, does that make sense? And you have to say, well, why did they do that? Well, that, it would make sense because they live in a Greek culture that has this pantheon of gods. There, there is this, this crazy amount of gods out there, and they want to be very clear that our God is not like that. Our God is not like the culture. 
Our, we do not have multiple gods. We have one God. Why? Because Yahweh, our Elohim, he is singular. So even though the Hebrew word is plural, the, the Jewish mindset is it's singular. Does that make any sense? Which is why in the Greek they always translate it singular. But ponder how amazing this thought is. That at the very beginning, God was like hiding the fact, or maybe it's, maybe it's too strong of language, but God was, was disclosing the fact that there's the Trinity. That there is a plurality in the midst of the singularity. And if you ever try to wrap your mind around the Trinity, your mind will explode. <laughs> I mean, all, like we, it really is beyond comprehension. The fact that when we, when we say God, we're, we're not talking about the Father. You, you do understand that, right? That, that when you're reading through the Old Testament and you come across the name God, you cannot think in your head, Father. Because it wasn't the Father. It was the Father. But it wasn't the Father. It was the triune God. It was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who was acting and speaking and, and moving. And, and, it, and he's one, folks. And we do not serve three gods. We have one God who have three distinct persons. And again, I don't know how you wrap your mind around this. And I've heard the worst illustrations over the years. God is like water. Ice, liquid, steam. No, he's not. That's stupid. Because you realize water can only be one of those at a time. It cannot be solid, ice, liquid, and steam all at the same time. That's a horrible illustration. Oh, he's like an apple or an egg, right? The egg has a shell, has the yolk, and it has that white stuff. That's, that's dumb too. Oh, he, he's like a man, right? Because a man could be like a father, and he could also be a son, and he could be, be like a general goof-off. No. No, we're not talking about personality. We're, we're not talking, we're talking distinct persons. Just like you're a person and you're a person and I'm a person, there's three distinct persons who have welded themselves together and they are one. If you need an illustration, the best one I've heard is a triangle. That a triangle has three distinct angles. And the moment you remove one angle, it's no longer a triangle. The triangle demands three angles and yet every angle is distinct and different and yet it all makes up one triangle. It breaks down eventually, but it's the best I've, I've ever heard. Regardless, do you realize that the God of the Old Testament is not the Father speaking? The Father wasn't the one creating. It was the triune God who was creating. It was the triune God who was speaking. In fact, Colossians, Paul is really strong on this, that do you know who spoke creation into existence? Jesus! That it literally came off the mouth of Jesus. That he is the creator. So as you come back in the Old Testament then, what you've got to reconcile in your own mind is that every time you see the name God, you can't just think Father, He is there. You just can't think Father though. You've got to think triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And all of that is surprisingly contained in this word Elohim, that He is one God and yet He's three distinct persons. And God gave that to us even in the Old Testament. Isn't that beautiful? So there's this idea of plural but singularity, that he is a singular God. Again, we can spend a lot of time on this, but we're just giving some more of you stuff. Uh, another name I want to introduce you to or remind you of is God's name, Yahweh, 
Sometimes it's translated Jehovah. Uh, the first time this word shows up is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, Genesis, uh, sorry, Genesis 1, 1 through Genesis 2, 3 is the first creation account. And then God repeats the creation account and gives a slightly different emphasis, starting in chapter 2, verse 4. And, and, and listen to what it says in Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that Yahweh Elohim made earth and heaven. And so we're introduced to this idea in Genesis 2-4 that the God, that Elohim, that, that created all things, that all-powerful, mighty one who created is not just some Elohim, like the culture has Elohim. We have a very distinct Elohim. Our God is Yahweh. It's also translated Jehovah. As you work through Genesis, I love, I love the repetition in chapter 2. Over and over and over again, it's not just Yahweh. It's not even just Elohim. It's always Yahweh Elohim. It's like this overemphasis of the fact that your Elohim, your God, has a name. It's Yahweh. Uh, for example, in chapter 2, verse 7, Then Yahweh God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Verse 8, then Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden. And 11 times in, in chapter 2, that phrase, Yahweh Elohim, shows up, which I just think is beautiful. And if you want to study this out, we don't have time for this. Uh, there's this really interesting thought when you get into chapter 3, where chapter 3, verse 1, opens with Yahweh God. And then you have this serpent that enters in, tempts Eve, and it's Fascinating to me that Satan purposely removes the Yahweh part. And Eve repeats it without the Yahweh part. And then verse 8 comes back, so this is bookended, and it says, Then Yahweh Elohim was walking in the cool of the garden, going, Where are you? And you, you, you'll have to say this. I just find it really interesting that the whole fall of humanity was bookended with Yahweh God, and yet what was removed is the personal, intimate name of God. I just think that's interesting. You can do whatever you want with that. Uh, the name Yahweh, or Jehovah, uh, the most popular passage, obviously, where we, where we often talk about the name Yahweh, is found in Exodus chapter 3. It's the whole Moses scene. Uh, Moses left Egypt. He ran away because he killed the Egyptian, and he, he's out in Arabia, <clears throat> and uh, he's tending sheep. And 40 years later, he's up on this mountain, and, and, and you know the story. But he's up on the mountain, and this bush starts to burn, and, and so he goes to investigate it, and the bush starts to speak and says, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt. And, and it, says, it says this uh, in, in verse 13. He says, Moses said to God, behold, I'm about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, what is his name? So what shall I tell them? Listen to this. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel. Now get this. This is, this is so powerful. This is mind boggling to me. God speaks to Moses and says, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. 
And this is my memorial name from generation to generation. Please contain your excitement. I don't know if you realize the profundity of this. Um, This is the name when, when you get to Exodus chapter 20. God says, do not take my name in vain. Hey, do not empty this name, Yahweh, of his content. And so what the Israelites began to do is they said, okay, well, if, if, if we don't, we want to obey that. We don't want to take God's name in vain. So we are going to stay as away from that name as possible. And so they quit using the name. And the only time the name was used is when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. At least that was the tradition. Is that that was because you had to speak the name, the holy name of God, the unspeakable name of God in his presence in the Holy of Holies. So unless that was happening, we're not going to use that name lest we take it in vain. And so what they began to do is they started to have some substitutions. And so, uh, like even to this day, if you go over to Israel, they will not use this name. They refuse to use this name lest they take it in vain. And so they will use the name Adonai, which we're going to look at in just a second, which means Lord. Uh, Sometimes uh, later on in, in, in Jewish history, uh, they started using the name Hashim, which means the name. <laughs> so we're not going to use the name. We'll just say, you know who I'm talking about? The name. That one. <laughs> that guy. You know, that, sorry, not that guy, but that God. And, and so they, they, they mo- removed themselves. But I, I really feel like they're missing something. Because what you begin to realize that with the name Yahweh, this, think about this. This is so incredible to me. God, Moses says, hey, what's your name? What what, what do you want me to tell them? God discloses his personal name and says, that's who I am. Now, there is some evidence in Genesis that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those guys, that, that they knew this name and that they were using this name. So this name probably was not foreign to Moses. But God, but God looks at Moses and says, you know who I am? Do, do you? And again, we're not talking just a name. We're not talking, we're talking in, uh, uh, character, we're talking nature, we're talking attribute kind of stuff. God says, you know who I am? I'm Yahweh. And that is my name. And that is my memorial name from generation to generation. I love that. I've been really excited, uh, usually in, in, in the scriptures, in your Bible, uh, when they translate this name, again, to stay away from taking it in vain, they don't translate it Yahweh. They don't translate it Jehovah, typically. They, they translate it as all caps Lord. Does that make sense? So as you're reading along, and it says the Lord, and it's all in caps, uh, that's this name. And I've been deeply blessed. I, I, uh, over this last uh, was a couple of years, uh, there's, a, there's a Bible that was based on the New American Standard that came out called the Legacy Standard. And they went through and replaced all of the, the Lord names with Yahweh. And at first I was like, oh, that's weird. Because, I mean, I grew up with the Lord. But I've been reading uh, through the legacy, and I've just been, oh, I've been so blessed. Because when you get to the Psalm, just, I, I hear, I see it different. When, when I get to the Psalms and it says, oh, then Yahweh said this. How, how blessed is Yahweh? How majestic is Yahweh in all the earth? And I'm like, you know what that is? That is his name. And I, and I do want to honor it. But folks, I think we can use it. He gave it to Moses, who he called his friend. 
And do you realize what Jesus did is he removed all the barriers so that you could have relationship with him, which means guess what? You can use his name, his memorial name from generation to generation, which means that is still his name today. And so I am slowly getting, trying to get into the habit of just saying, oh, do you know who my God is? His name is Jesus. His name is Yahweh. And by the way, the name Jesus is based on that name Yahweh. It's Yahweh, Yesh, Yahweh Shua. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. That's the name Jesus. Now, when we translated Yahweh into the English stuff, we translated it with the J sound, with, with Jehovah. But whether you want to say the word Jehovah or whether you want to say the name Yahweh, that is his name. Isn't that beautiful? Some of you are not excited. Let me give you two ideas. Uh, number one, oh, by the way, this name, this name Yahweh, shows up over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. This is God's primary name in the scriptures. There's, there's a few of the names that we'll look at are, that are used only once, but this is the name that shows up the most times in all of scripture. Yahweh, over 6,500 times. Sometimes it's Yahweh Elohim, like I showed you. Sometimes it's Adonai Elohim. Sorry, Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. But this name Yahweh shows up 6,500 times. Uh, so a couple ideas. Number one is this idea of permanent. When we say the name Yahweh, I love the fact that, it, again, it's speaking of character and nature stuff. Uh, that word Yahweh is based on the root word that means to be, which is why it's often I am who I am, or, you know, the, the I amness of God. Now, when you get into the idea of the I amness of God, it's speaking of the fact that he was, and he is, and he forever will be. In other words, it's talking about the fact that he doesn't change, that his nature is constant. And because his nature is constant, you can trust him, that he is stable. He is a foundation. He, he doesn't, he, he's not capricious. Right? He, he's not shifting. He's, he's not a shadow that just moves around and you, you don't know, like, is he, is he happy today? Did he wake up on the right side of the bed today? Like, like what, what's going on? He's constant, folks. And when you look at the name Yahweh, one of the most amazing realities of that name is the fact that it's talking about his eternalness. It's talking about his everness. It's talking about the fact that he is immutable. It's talking about the fact that he does not change. He was, he is, and he forever will be the same. Do you know how amazing that is? Because as we start getting into some of the names, a lot of God's names are based on this name. He is Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh, right? What, is it, what does it mean for him to be Jehovah Jireh? That God, Jehovah, Yahweh, he is the provider, which doesn't mean that he, you know, a couple thousand years ago during the time of Jesus or a few thousand years before that in the time of Moses. Yeah, he provided things back then. But we don't know about now. That when he says, you know who I am? I am Jehovah Jireh. That means he was a provider back then. He is a provider this very moment. And he forever will be a provider. So again, you can go five billion, trillion, gazillion years into eternity and he will still be Jehovah Jireh because he's always a provider. That's his heart. That's his nature. 
That's incredible, isn't it? So there's this idea of permanence. So when God says, hey, I am Yahweh, you want to know what my name is? What? I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh God. That means he's stable. He's constant. In fact, he overemphasizes this in Malachi. In Malachi 3.6, he says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. That's phenomenal. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, it's the same concept. Speaking of Jesus, who is Yahweh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. Please contain your excitement. But if you would grab a hold of that concept, it will ch it'll change everything. Because what that means is when God promises, he cannot lie. Well, when God says, this is who I am, that is always who he is. He is stable. This is his foundational attribute. He doesn't change. And one, one other quick idea. Again, we could spend all day talking about this name. In fact, this is one of those names that just keeps getting richer and more better. More better? Is that grammatically correct? It gets better the more I, the more I ponder and study it. But a second idea with this, again, we're just doing big overview stuff. A second idea with this name Yahweh is this idea that it's personal. This is God's intimate, self-proclaimed name. A lot of the names that we're going to look at, it's interesting that God <clears throat> did not give them. Someone gave it to God. For example, in, in Genesis chapter 21, sorry, Genesis 22, I think it's 22. Uh, it was Abraham who looked at the provision of the Lord with the ram in the thicket and says, oh, you are Jehovah Jireh. Now, God gives a lot of names. We get that. But a lot of them are, God, you did this, so woo, I'm going to declare who you are. But this is his intimate, this is his personal name, or as he said, this is my memorial name from generation to generation. So, so God is, do you realize that God is not this impersonal God who's out there somewhere looking down with binoculars, seeing what you're doing? That when God, the all-powerful, all, you know, the, the creator is creating the world, he's not just sitting back and, and going, all right, I guess I'll do some things. And he, he's intimate with his creation. He, he's personal. He, he's smack dab in the middle of your life. Yes, he has the universe in the palm of his hand. He is El Olam. And yet he knows the number of hairs on your head. That he sees you. That, that, that he's intimate. And when you say the name Yahweh, it, it, it's personal. That, that he's, he's somehow, I don't know how you want to say this, but it's just like he, he's opened himself up and he's invited you in. Or, or he's, he's condescended himself to the fact that he's, he's getting down on our level and he's looking you in your eye and he's just, he's personal, folks. He's not distant. He's actively involved. And I'm, I've been pondering, we may come back and do a whole session on Yahweh because it's just been, oh, it's been phenomenal. But it's just overview stuff. I want to give you a third one really quick. And it's the name Adonai, which means Lord or Master. Uh, it's used as a name. <clears throat> His name is Adonai. Again, this was the replacement name for Yahweh to the Jews. In fact, today, as we're reading the scriptures, if they're reading through the Old Testament, anytime they get to the name Yahweh, they replace it with Adonai. So, so if you ever hear 
then Adonai did this, and then Adonai did that. Uh, it's, it's this word being a replacement for the name Adonai. Uh, this word, Adonai, shows up a little over 400 times in the Old Testament, <clears throat> speaking of, uh, of our God. And again, the, the word, the idea of Adonai means a lord or a master. And oftentimes it's portrayed in a relationship sense between like a master and a slave or a husband and a wife, uh, which is why you have those awkward passages at times uh, where it's like you have this, like Sarah turns to Abraham and says, oh, my Lord. And you're like, that's weird. But it's this idea that, that, that positionally he's been given the headship. Or imagine a master and a slave. And the slave goes, hey, master, what do you want me to do? Or, or hey, Lord. Uh, this was a very popular term during the time of kings, right? You go to the king of England and you say, oh, my Lord, right? It's that idea. It's this positional thing when you're talking about uh, this idea of, of the name. Now, as applied to God, do you realize when we say, oh, Lord, we're not just, we've used it so often. I think we forgot what that means. But it means that you are in authority. <clears throat> you are in a position of power. You are the master. And I am subservient to you. And I am here. What do you want? Just as a slave is, is ready and has his ear ready for the voice of his master, so too, Lord, I, I am ready. I am listening. Oh, speak for your servant listens. It's that idea. <clears throat> uh, the first time this word is used is in uh, Genesis chapter 15. And Abram, or Abraham, says this. He says, oh, Adonai, Yahweh. Isn't that fascinating? So he specifically calls Yahweh his Adonai. So he says, oh, Adonai, Yahweh, what will you give me as I go on being childless? And the heir of my house, Eliezer, is of Damascus. Or sorry, <laughs> let me read that again. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So here's Abram, he's childless, and he says, God, you're my master. You're my, hey, you're the one controlling my whole life situation. You called me out from my father's house. You've led me to this promised land. Hey, I, I have submitted myself under your authority. What are you going to do? Because I don't have kids. And the one in charge of my household, if I die right now, Eliezer is going to take over. So you're the master. What do you want to do? I'm listening. And Abram's in this posture of, Submission. Surrender. So do you realize every time you use the name Lord, what you are declaring is you're beneath. He's in charge. Do you realize that you weren't made to control your life? You were not designed to sit in the chair of a power. He is. I don't think it's by accident that as you come into the New Testament, this name Lord, which is in the Greek kurios, it's used over 700 times. Now, not all of those are for Jesus, but a predominant amount of them is speaking about the fact that Jesus is Lord, that he's the master. In fact, Dan McConaughey really helped me with this. Do you know what the number one title or name for Christians are in the New Testament? Like the name Christian, like what we're called, Christian is only used a couple of times. And, and it was derogatory in the day, right? <laughs> because they're like, oh, you little Christs. And it was like, oh, they're Christians. But that, that's not a very popular one. Sons 
daughters, they'll show up a few times. Believers, that shows up quite a few times. But do you know what the number one title for a believer is in the New Testament? Slave. That's awkward, especially in our culture. But do you realize, by, by the way, Paul boasted about this. You read a lot of his opening letters, like Romans 1. He's like, Paul, a slave of Christ. That this was a privileged thing. But every time, think about this, every time you declare Jesus is Lord, what you are also saying is, and I am your servant. I am your slave. You have my ear. Speak. So let me give you a couple ideas. When we use the name Yahweh, or sorry, Adonai, number one, it's this idea of position. That he is in authority. He is in the control seat. We are submitted and surrendered underneath his authority. That this is not about us. This is not about, well, I'm going to do this for Jesus. No. Well, would you be a vessel open to, yes, you got to walk in obedience. But hey, would you be a vessel through which he wants to do something through you? See, a slave does not go up to the master and say, I'm going to do this. Hey, I need you to do this for me. That's not what a slave does. What does a slave do? What does a servant do? The servant stands by the door and says, I'm ready. What do you want? Hey, I'm in a posture of obedience. In fact, isn't it beautiful to think that in the Old Testament, uh, say you're a Jew or an Israelite and and hard times come and so, so you sell yourself off to someone else and you become a slave. And it gets to the end of your, your, your you know, the, the contract date of when you have to be a servant. And you realize your master is actually a phenomenal master. I mean, he's so good. And you realize, actually, it would be a privilege and it would be a joy. And I'd actually have more freedom and peace being a slave of that master because he's a good master than if I was out on my own. And so God says, you know what you should do? You should take your ear to the doorpost of that master and allow him to take an awl, which is like a little tent peg thing, and jam it in your ear. (laughs) And you would have a gauged ear. This was before it was cool. Uh, And and your ear would literally be symbolically broken. And do you realize symbolically what that means is that this ear is under the authority of that master. I have given my ear, that which I heed, that which I listen to, to that master. He's such a good master. I am his forever. My ear now belongs to him. So anything he says goes. And that is an interesting picture, a shadowing of what God demands from all of us. Can I, can I have your ears? Which doesn't mean, okay, God, you can have this ear, but I'm going to do whatever I want over here. <laughs> that's, not what, that's not what it means. It means I'm fully submitted under his authority. Do you realize that our God is a good master? He's a great master. During the time of Paul, the Roman, in, the, in the Roman culture, every single master, every single Lord, was required by law to give three things to their servants or their slaves. They had to give protection, they had to give provision, and they had to give direction. And I'll bring this up. 
I'm not going to go into this deeply because I'll bring this up when we talk about the fact that God is a, God is a shepherd because that's exactly what a shepherd gives his sheep. Protection, provision, direction. Wouldn't it be phenomenal to realize? And in the Roman culture, even bad masters had to do that legally. And if a bad master was willing to give protection, provision, and direction, how much more a good master? And we don't have just a shepherd. We have a great shepherd. We don't just have a master. We have a woo kind of she- uh, a master. And he says, would, would, you, would you give me your ears? Hey, hey, would, you, would, you, would you give this to me and come under my authority? And would you just, would you obey me? Would you just, would you let me be in control? We have such a hard time with that, don't we? Why? Because I don't think we've ever actually given God our ears. We said stuff like, okay, God, you say, or you speak through your word, and then I'm going to reason through my own ability and see if I really want to obey, and then maybe I'll do it. That's not what a slave does. A slave has a predecided yes. A slave says, master, whatever you say, I'm already in. A slave says, you speak, and I will say, hey, you say jump, I say how high. You say go, I'll say how far. I mean, I just, what do you want? I'm here. I'm just, my life is yours. My life is not my own. Doesn't this sound like the New Testament? Paul said this stuff all the time. I am crucified with Christ, and the life I live is no longer mine. He's living his life through me stuff. That, that, that I, I have died to myself. Jesus said this all the time. Pick up your cross and die. And dead people do not have opinions on what God says to them. Hey, would would you go as a missionary? I don't want to. Well, then you're not listening. You're not surrendered. You're not submitted. Do not fear. Yeah, but I really like fear. And God says, I'll give you the provision, everything you need not to fear. And as your master, as your Lord, I'm saying, don't, don't fear. Isn't it dumb how we don't listen? And listening, let me just jump into number two, which is the idea of posture. Did you realize that our posture before the Lord needs to be this, uh, as, as Samuel said, right, to, to God in 1 Samuel 3.10, he says, speak, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm listening. Speak, because your servant is listening. Wouldn't it be neat if that was our posture? W- what would happen if we actually gave God our ear? And we realize that he's not, again, he's not some distant God that is yelling at us. He's intimate. He's personal. He wants relationship. In fact, the God of the universe, Yahweh himself, has come to live inside of your life through his spirit. He is intimate and personal. And now he's like, oh, would you just obey me? And everything I tell you to do is actually for your benefit. See, the the pagan gods out there, they're all self-centered. The the pagan gods out there, and if you read Greek or whether you read Roman or whether you read Egyptian or ancient Canaanite, it does not matter the culture. When you read about the gods that they used to worship, right, whether it's Zeus or whether it's Ra or whether it's, you know, whoever, all of them were selfish. All of them were disinterested in humanity. All of them did not. And God says, I'm not like them because I'm personal. 
See, the gods out there, when they said, do this, it was for their benefit. And I do not understand why, but God says, oh, I want you to do this. Why? Because you need this. And yes, I'll receive the glory. And that's primarily my agenda. I get that. But you realize when God tells us to do something, it is for him, but it's for us. We get all the benefit. Do not fear. That's not for him, folks. That's for you. Walk in purity. That's for you. Rejoice always. Oh, fine. What are you talking about? That's for you. Hey, give up your sin. Oh, bummer. What are you talking about? That's for you. So your good master who wants your ear and wants you to be submitted is a personal God who lives inside of you who actually wants to do something in and through you, not because he's mean and nasty and trying to just force humanity to do some stuff. It's because he so loves you and so cares for you that he is desperate for you. And as a master, if he tells his slave to do something, it's not because he's selfish, it's because he's love and he's selfless. He's pouring his life out for you. I want to be a slave to that kind of a master. See, you read the history books. I, I don't know of a single master that was like that. Well, why do I have slaves? Well, I have needs and I don't want to do them. So go do them for me. See, that, that's the human mindset of a master. But God says, Psst, throw that away. Do you know what I am? I'm a master that actually seeks to serve. Read Philippians chapter 2. Jesus says, man, I, I am God. Paul's writing it, but Jesus is God, and yet he took the form of a servant. And what's really interesting in the Greek is that it wasn't that he came to earth for 33 years and acted as a servant and then finally went, you know, ascended back into heaven and went, whoa, finally glad that's done. I'm done being a servant. That actually, when you study it out in the Greek, do you realize when it says that he came in the form of a servant, the emphasis is actually he's always had the heart of a servant. That is actually his nature. He just came and actually was in the physical expression what he has always been and what he always will be. So ponder this. Your good Adonai who's asking you to come in, in a posture of obedience, in, in, in a posture of slavery, in a posture of humility, a posture that says, yes, Lord, I'm listening. Hey, what, whatever you say is going to go. Hey, I'm coming under your authority because you are in the position. Hey, Lord, I'm listening. Hey, I'm going to obey. Do you realize everything he's asking is from a heart of love and in a posture of humility and in a posture of serving? That is my book. So why wouldn't we obey? Why wouldn't we take a posture of saying, yes, Lord? Why wouldn't we actually understand, like Paul, that to be a slave, a doulos of Christ, is one of the greatest privileges, and it is the place of ultimate freedom, and the place of ultimate joy, and it's the place of ultimate peace and, and, and fulfillment. And See, you, folks, you don't get a choice. You will be a slave. 
Read Romans 6. You're either going to be a slave of the world and a slave to sin, which leads to unrighteousness and death, or you'll be a slave of Christ, which leads to righteousness and life. So your choice is not whether you get to be a slave. The choice is who you're going to obey. And if you look at the world, and if you look at sin, do, do you realize that that slave master only produces death? Yes, he'll give you momentary pleasure, but the chains get tighter and tighter and tighter. But your master, if you would submit and serve, and yes, Lord, do you realize that, yeah, there's things you can't do, but you're actually walking in freedom. You're actually walking in the fullness of joy. The very thing that you crave is the very thing that he is providing. We have a good master. Let me give you one bonus idea. It's this idea of preeminence. I love what Colossians 1.18 says. Paul, talking about the majesty and the wonder of Jesus Christ, says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. In other words, he has the position of headship. He is Adonai, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself, get this, will come to have first place in everything. Do you know the word everything in Greek means? Yeah, everything. Uh, the, the ESV and a lot of translations say this way, that in everything he might be preeminent, which means first place. Do you realize that what God actually wants in our lives is he doesn't want to be an add-on to our lives. He wants to be your life. Christianity is not a Sunday thing. If you're super spiritual, Wednesday night. That's not Christianity, folks. Christianity is always and in everything a Christian. That he wants to be Lord of your life. And again, he's not just some distant God who is barking at us. He is an intimate and personal God. His name is Yahweh, who came as Jesus in the flesh. Yahweh in the flesh. And was love. And he demands obedience. Well, it sounds like I won't be able to do anything. What are you talking about? He's a good master. interesting to me that in the, in the New Testament, there was this idea, Paul was so subversive. I think because we don't understand the cultural context, we, we forget how intense Paul's language was. But there was this constant battle between Jesus and Caesar. And the question that was on the table during the time of the early church is who is the kurios? Who is Lord? As a Roman, under the Roman authority, I had to declare, Caesar is Lord. Hey, he's in charge. He's the master. He's the big deal. Hey, I am subservient. I'm coming under his authority. Hey, I, in fact, this became so intense, he was worshipped. Caesar was everything in the Roman culture. Do you know how crazy it was for Paul to march in into a Roman culture, stand up and say, Whoa! Jesus is Lord. And there's an exclusivity in this. Because Jesus cannot be Lord and Caesar 
be Lord at the same time. There can only be one Lord. There can only be one master. You cannot have multiple masters. You'll either serve the one and disobey the other, but you, cannot, you, you, can't, you can't do both. And as a Roman person, as a Roman citizen, who's lived their entire life under the authority and the auspice of Caesar is Lord, do you know when people would start declaring that Jesus is Lord, there's a reason they were sent to the, to, to the wild beasts. There's a reason they were crucified. There's a reason that they were burnt on stakes. There's a re- Why? Because what you were saying when you declare that Jesus is Lord is that I am severing myself from this system and this mentality and this lordship of Rome and I put myself under the authority and the lordship of Jesus and his kingdom. I am no longer going to be a citizen of this kingdom. I'm going to be a citizen of this kingdom. Are you getting this? Caesar is not going to be the master of my life. Jesus is now the master of my life. So be careful. When you say, Jesus is Lord, you're saying something. Hey, when you read in Scripture that the Lord did this, and you're like, oh, yes, Lord, thank you. Do you realize you're saying something? And we don't live in a Roman culture that worships Caesar, but we have a culture that demands loyalty. We have a culture that demands obedience. We have a culture that says, hey, this is what success looks like, and, and dress this way, and act this way, and talk this way, and, and accept these things. And, and it's starting to become a little bit more black and white in our day. The, the cultural agenda that is, that's being pushed upon us it's starting, to, it's starting to bump up against this. I mean, you go back 50 years ago and you could sort of have a foot in both places. But things are, things are moving, which I actually think is really good, by the way. Pick a side. Which is why the church in China and the church in North Korea is praying for the church in North America. Why? Because we have no persecution. And when you have no persecution, you don't have to decide. You can just kind of live. But do you realize that in China, when you make a declaration that Jesus is Lord, the whole system is against you. Hey, if you're in the Middle East in one of the Muslim countries and you declare, woo, Jesus is Lord, do you realize your life is on the line? Why? Because you can't serve both. And we have been pampered and we've been passive in the fact that as, as, as North American Christians and the Kiwis that are in the room, that, that we in, in, the, in the Western world, we're, we're living in this duality that biblically you actually can't do. There's nothing wrong with living in America. I love living in America. I love the fact that we have a measure of peace for however much longer we have it. But do you realize I cannot come under this thought process? I can't come under this system. I can't come under this why? Because my loyalty is Jesus. And I'm quite confident there's coming a point when you're going to have to make a choice. And maybe you'll be in your lifetime, maybe it won't be in your lifetime, but look at what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. At the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus. Think about this. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and those on, on the earth. This means everybody and everything. Hey, all the supernatural beings, it seems like, in the passage, 
Hey, everyone will have to declare, use their tongue and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But you realize if you're being forced to say it, I said this last time, but if you're being forced to bow and forced to worship and forced to declare that he's actually the master and the Lord, that's not going to go well. Because there's judgment in that. See, wouldn't it be amazing if now I can actually see how good he is? If now I begin to see how personal he is? And I was willing to stoop and say, oh, Take the throne of my life. Dictate this thing. And I don't want to be bound to some Caesar as Lord. I want to be bound to Jesus. I want to have my ear pierced with Jesus. Don't you? So just as we're laying a foundation for who our precious God is, and over the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking and how so many of his names use one of these three primary names to enhance and reveal who our God is. But think about this. Our God is powerful. He is one God. And yet he's three. But we do not serve three gods. We serve one God. And the Yahweh of the universe, do you know what his other name is? Jesus. That's his name. Yahweh in the flesh. It's our precious Jesus. That he's permanent. He's unchanging. He's personal. That he has a position of authority and power and might and dominion. That he is the master. Which means I must take a posture of humility and submission to him. And he and he alone is the preeminent one. He is to have first place in all things. Do you know your God like that? Is the God that you actually worship the God? Or is it some thing that you've made up? Something that actually looks more like you and what makes you comfortable? Could we set aside all of our, what we want God to be and see him as he is and come and worship and serve him? He's good. Pray with me. Lord, I want you to truly be Lord of my life. Lord, thank you that you are creator God. That you are the all-powerful one. That even in the early pages of scripture, you show forth the fact that the triune nature of who you are is was acting and moving and speaking. Lord, thank you that, that your nature does not change, that you are not wishy-washy, that you are reliable, you are trustworthy, you are faithful and true, and we could build our lives upon you. God, thank you that you are personal, that you're not just some outside God who's yelling at us and telling us what to do, and thank you that you're not a self-centered God that is just so focused in on yourself and could care less about humanity. But you loved us so much that you came 
to do everything that we needed so that we could have life and godliness, so that we can walk triumphant, that we, could, we can actually be the image bearers that you made us to be. Thank you that you are in a position of lordship, that you are master and lord of all. Lord, could you somehow allow us to realize that we weren't made to rule and control our own lives. We were made to be subservient. And that's a good thing. We were made to serve. And that's actually a great thing. And like Paul, we can actually boast, well, I am the slave of Christ. And yet the master that I, that I serve is actually the one that I love and I have a relationship with. And, and he's actually called me a son and he invites me into the table and I get to sit and hang out with him. And, but wow, he's my master. And yet he's my friend. Lord, I want you to be the authority in my life. I want to submit and surrender and just say, Lord, you can do whatever you want with this life as long as it would bring you glory. If it would just put a smile on your face. And Lord, I recognize that anything and everything that you ask of me is, is ultimately going to be for your glory, but it's also I get the benefit of all of it. So Lord, I just pray, would you be preeminent in my life? Would you be first place? Would you be the thought? Would you be the focus? Would you be the delight? Would you be the consumption of my very being? And I just want to say that I love you. I just thank you that you and you alone are God. And your name is Yahweh. We love you in your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.